This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is there was an attempted coup in Russia. The head of the Wagner Group, Evgeny Prigozhin, turned his forces out of Ukraine and turned them on to Russia. He took the Russian city of Rostov. The Russians couldn't take Bakhmut for uh, for months and months, but he took Rostov in a matter of hours, was greeted like a conquering hero by the crowds, and started on his way up uh, to, to Moscow, and then suddenly stopped and turned around and made some kind of a and deal. And said, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> and he's now in Belarus. Belarus in some deal. You know, we didn't even get into the Lukashenko angle on this, but he's in, in Belarus and everybody was watching this unfold and we just couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Uh, so we've got somebody who has a good theory as to what the hell was going on and can explain it for us. Yaroslav Trofimov, who's the Wall Street Journal's uh, chief foreign correspondent, who's uh, been on the ground in Russia, in Ukraine, all over the region, and really has some really interesting insights. He's going to tell us what he thinks it all means. For me, what was fascinating, I happened to be on that very day, I happened to be at a dinner with a, a fairly large number of senior administration officials, quote unquote, senior administration officials, I'm not going to name them. And what was absolutely remarkable was they had no idea what the hell was going on at all. They didn't see this coming. They didn't see the risk. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And another thing that was absolutely clear is that these are all very senior people who are informed by the top levels of the Central Intelligence Agency. And that... They didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, it's worse than that, Mark, though. It's not just that they don't know what's going on. It is that a lot of the assumptions that were made about Russia appeared to be false, and they were as flabbergasted by that as the rest of us were. So during the Cold War, if you remember, the CIA was often in error, rarely in doubt. Right? <laughs> Said that the Soviets were hugely strong, that the Soviet economy was doing extremely well, that Soviet military capacity was outstanding, that they represented yada, 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 yada. Basically had, had geography about this enemy. And of course, once the Soviet Union came crashing down, we realized that the emperor was wearing no clothes. Well, you remember the famous story about how they were counting the, the number of Soviet missiles during the May Day Parade down uh, Moscow's Red Square, and they would count the missiles, and they didn't realize that it was the same missiles circling around and coming back over and over again. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really like a farce. It is a little bit like, you know, Dr. Strangelove here. But they appear to be making the same mistake again. Yeah. And, and you know, you might say to yourself, listener, you might, self? You might say to yourself, <laughs> self, how could they be wrong about this? And the answer is uh, that I think that not only is our intelligence not very good, but that it is almost always dictated by assumptions that uh, are not tested any longer. And 
the Biden administration is making a lot of important decisions based on this intelligence about about the Russians, including we can't provoke the viper, the viper in Moscow, because he's going to hit us. As Joe Biden said, it's going to be Armageddon. He's going to hit us with nuclear weapons. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing that this has exposed is that Putin is not. Uh, and I don't want to give away the story that Yaros t- tells at the beginning of he, he wrote a brilliant essay in the Wall Street Journal and a story about Vladimir Putin from his youth. But he's not the viper that attacks. He's actually, when confronted with pressure and confronted with a, a threat to his uh, regime. He begs for mercy. He begs for mercy or negotiates or, or, or you know, cuts a deal. I mean, so here is this guy, Prigozhin, who is his creature. I mean, he created him. He he, he funded him. He funded he him, him, and they he, were best friends. They were best friends. He was his he was his caterer. He was he was his <laughs> most trusted. You know, because lots of people go from catering to building a private army. <laughs> I mean, but, but apparently in Russia, that's what happened. And he was he was. I mean, he was his creature. Can I just he, say this, by the way? Yeah. You know, all those chef shows on TV. I can 100% see a lot of those people <laughs> starting their own private armies. <laughs> we should all be terrified of the idea of Gordon Ramsay running a private army. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that when he was confronted by this mutiny of his closest ally, he just he buckled. Yep. Um, and so why are we so afraid of him? Why are we afraid to give the Ukrainians long-range missiles because it might provoke Putin? Why are we afraid to give them Abrams tanks? Why are we afraid to give them uh, F-16 fighter jets because Putin might get upset? He uses this mystique that he's a strong man, that he's impenetrable, and, and all the rest of it in order to deter us. And we're really just deterring ourselves because he is not that strong. He is actually weak, and this has exposed his weakness. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think that... It has exposed the flimsy nature of the pacifist counterarguments that are coming from Berlin and from and from Washington, frankly, from the White House and elsewhere. But it does it does beg the question whether we could do more to destabilize the Putin regime. I mean, do we really want him in power? Think about what Putin has done over the last few years. Putin was the invaluable element in allowing the Assad regime to stay in power. Hezbollah couldn't do it. Iran couldn't do it. But the Russian troops actually saved Assad's bacon in Syria. He uh, got, for the first time since the Cold War, a port on the Mediterranean through Syria. Russia is now supporting Iran. Russia is uh, now destabilizing a whole variety of other countries. And maybe... This guy is nothing more than a paper tiger. If that's the case, you got to ask yourself, why are we not pushing on him harder? Well, the way we can push on him harder is to help the Ukrainians win. Win faster. Be- and win, win faster. faster. You know, there's this, there's this myth that they've sort of internalized in the Biden administration that a slow, long, lower-level conflict is less of a risk of escalation than a fast blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg, right? It's like, no, not really. Uh, well, and- it's easier for them. It may not be nice for the Ukrainian people. But, you know, what's a few Ukrainians here or there to the White House? Exactly. Why don't we just take the gloves off and let the Ukraine. I mean, again, there's no American, there's no NATO troops fighting. There's no American troops fighting. We're not losing soldiers. Uh, all the Ukrainians are asking for are the weapons to, to fight the Russians. And wouldn't it be great if they not only won, but then this resulted in Putin falling 
And, you know, people wonder, oh, well, what, what, what comes after him be worse? Well, first of all, what could be worse <laughs> than, yeah. uh, than, than Putin? And even if it was, it would prob- they'd probably be rather internal focused for a while as opposed to focused on threatening uh, the West and NATO and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I, I think if the Ukrainians win quickly and Putin falls as a result of his miscalculation, great. Yep. Good for us. Good Amen. for our security. Amen. Go for it. Amen. Let's that that is it. exactly okay. well, let's right. Let's put us in charge and we'll fix it. <laughs> exactly. As as always. So uh, most of our listeners are familiar with Yaroslav Trofimov. He's been with us several times and, and he has been reporting on the ground from Ukraine since January of 2022. As Mark said, he is the chief foreign affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He He's served in a whole variety of different roles around the world. Uh, bureau chief in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Dubai-based as well uh, for the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of two absolutely fantastic books, Faith at War and The Siege of Mecca. Here's our interview. Well, Yaro, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back. Well, it's great to have you. So you had a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal about what's next for Russia, and you start out by telling this story about a young Vladimir Putin growing up in a tenement in post-war Leningrad, and he encounters a rat. Tell us the story about Putin and the rat. Yeah, this is sort of one of the highlights of Putin's uh, autobiography that was published when he just became president uh, 23 years ago. And the story goes that, you know, he was living in a a tenement a building uh, and was crawling with rats. And so the boys would go and try to chase them away from the landing. And one day, you know, he tried to do it by himself, and the rats, when cornered, lashed out of him. Uh, and the frightened little uh, Vladimir Putin had to run back to his apartment, and he just managed to slam the door behind him uh, as the rat was in pursuit. And the moral of the story, as then recounted by Russian propaganda, was that. Russia should never be cornered because if Russia is cornered, uh, then it would be unpredictable, it would be violent, and so it's best to appease Russia so it doesn't lash out at you. So, so what Putin happens, is the rat. Well, you know, Russia doesn't seek to be loved, right? I mean, the, the entire purpose of the Russian sort of foreign policy lately is let them be afraid of us. They're not going to love us anyway. And so, yes, the cornerstone of that approach is you know, you should be talking about us because we're unpredictable, we're violent, uh, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, it's sort of one version of the sort of madman theory that goes back, you know, to Richard Nixon in the U.S. as well. What is the lesson that this has for the the situation with the Prigozhin coup? Because he he didn't act like the rat, did he? Not at all. Basically, the entire Putin mystique built up uh, very carefully over the last 23 years was this was an absolute alpha male, you know, riding horses bare-chested, doesn't forgive treason, you know, all his enemies die painful death from nerve agents or poison tea or just being shot inside the Kremlin. And all of a sudden, he had this amazing challenge to his authority. He had a column of armed troops driving to Moscow, virtually unopposed, on the verge of seizing the city. And... Putin himself, the morning of that day, went on television and said, this is a treason, this is a stab in the back, you know, this is the betrayal of the motherland. And, you know, 10 hours later, all of a sudden, he forgave everyone and reached a, a compromise, the details of which we don't really know yet, that was brokered by the president of Belarus. And so all of a sudden, Prigozhin, you know, the leader of Wagner who led his column, 
is a gun raider, Swati's man. You know, the money and the weapons that were confiscated from him in St. Petersburg the morning of the day were given back, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, according to Russian reports. And everything is forgiven. So that really doesn't jive with the image of Putin uh, that was built up over the two decades. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is that you know, often when you talk to people who, even people who are hostile to Russia or hostile to the Putin regime or hostile to the war, all say, but you know, what's remarkable is the Russian people, they really love Putin. And when the Wagner Group guys, when Prigozhin and his, and his troops march on Rostov, where the Russian military headquarters was, that didn't appear to be the case. It appeared to be the case that people were throwing themselves at Prigozhin, handshakes, cheers, Maybe they don't love Putin. What's the right conclusion to draw about the Russian people's mentality about this right now? I think the, the foundation of the regime is indifferent. So for the last 20 years, they were really inculcating in the population a political indifference. So the deal was, you know, we provide the security and the economy is growing as it was until, you know, at least 2014. And in return, we just stay away from politics. You know, don't get interested in anything. And when when this push happened, all of a sudden nobody was really out in the streets defending Putin. You know, there was there were no public voices until he spoke in the morning. And and I wouldn't say that there was a lot of love for Prigozhin and Wagner. There was curiosity, but there was certainly no one out there saying let's defend our president love him so much. People didn't care. And lots of people in Moscow that day uh, were kind of expecting that the city would fall without a fight. And uh, some were worrying about this. Most of them were indifferent. And that is really the sort of the Achilles heel of this regime, is that if someone else challenges him, we now know that the population will really not care. So here's a question for you, because I'm drawing a imperfect parallel here. But, you know, one of the problems with totalitarian regimes is that people aren't free to talk about politics. And so they hate the regime, but they're not sure if their neighbor hates the regime. And, you know, when John Paul II was elected and he came to Poland for the first time in 1979 and a million people came out in the square for the mass, they suddenly realized all their neighbors felt the same way as they did. And it was like a liberating moment. This is obviously not the same thing. Prigozhin isn't John Paul II. But is there a sense that perhaps the reaction had an effect on the population in the sense that it people realized my neighbors don't love Putin either. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't we're not all behind the regime. The propaganda is a lie. Is there some truth to that? Well I think there are different levels to it. I think I think the message that Prigozhin was uh, articulating that the war is going really badly and that all of unwarranted casualties and that the war is ultimately unnecessary, I think that is percolating, especially within the army. But I think in the society as a whole, you know, the sense of learned helplessness, the sense that these political events can't really affect me, is a very Soviet trait. Mm-hmm. I mean, even so in Ukraine, in, in, in the East in 2014, you know, when a small group of people took over Donetsk, most, most of the residents didn't really realize that their lives would be offended by quote-unquote politics, and, you know, half of them have to flee the city. So you have still the same thing in Russia, that politics is sort of for the boyars and the tar up there, and that we really shouldn't get involved. And I think the events of, of this, uh, you know, short-lived meeting showed that, you know, if a small but determined group of people tries to oust the regime, nobody else will stand in their way. I, I think that's exactly right. It was really 
remarkable how Prigozhin shattered that myth. I want to talk to you for a second about Prigozhin's complaints, because I don't really understand. I've seen a lot of Kremlinology about why it is that Putin was willing to tolerate over the last several months escalating very public complaints from Prigozhin, not just on telegram channels, but elsewhere, about the quality of Russia's command. So Prigozhin's big complaints, he was always very careful about Putin, and you've written about this, but his big complaints were that the defense minister, Shoigu, and that the chief of general staff, um, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, is it Gerasimov? Yeah, that they were running the war incompetently, that they're, they didn't know what they were doing, that they were the reason that Russia was not prospering in its campaign in Ukraine. Putin tolerated all of that for so long, and then suddenly Prigozhin's had enough. He can't take it anymore, and, and he goes for it. it. Can you just explain to us what, well, at least as best you understand, what this all was about? Yeah, okay, so we have to go first of all to the reason why Wagner was built up. You know, Putin comes from the good old KGB, from the, you know, the Soviet security services, which then became FSB. And the fear in, in the KGB was always the fear of the army. Going all the way, way back to Marshal Zhukov and fears of Zhukov, you know, the legendary victor, you know, victorious general of World War II, uh, would try to seize power. Uh, always dominated the relationship between the FSB and the army. So Putin is afraid of the army. Uh, you know, Putin in his 22 years in power has removed most of the sort of charismatic generals who really rally public support. And he built up Wagner in part to be a, this Praetorian guard that could keep the army in check. And there is a sort of old personal bond between him and Prigozhin. You know, Prigozhin was his shack and caterer. He gave him the, all the contracts to uh, supply the military with uh, food and other things. You know, I mean, Prigozhin made tens of billions of dollars of, of, of the Russian state. Uh, and uh, up until the very last moment, as this personal um, hostility grew between Prigozhin's Wagner people and uh, the leadership of the Russian Ministry of Defense, Putin did not interfere. Kind of stood there, so he didn't realize how serious it is. And if you look at Prigozhin's complaints, initially there were complaints about how the war is mismanaged. And obviously, the war is mismanaged. You know, Russian casualties are uh, horrendous. Russia lost you know, 2,000 tanks. And the entire plan for this quick, victorious war, that, to be fair, was Putin's plan even more than Shogun's and Prigozhin's, was completely flawed. And, and there's a sense within the Russian ranks, among colonels and majors, and especially captains and company commanders, that the, the high brass of the military just doesn't care, doesn't care about casualties, and he's completely uh, unable to pr- prosecute the war uh, in, any, in any sort of rational way. And we have seen that there were no battlefield victories for the Russian army for over a year, whereas Prigozhin, at, at a huge cost, however, managed to seize the city of Bakhmut, which was the only Russian victory in the last 12 months. So, uh, but this criticism really changed in part because Prigozhin was in Bakhmut. He was, you know, seeing horrible things, being, you know, underselling. And I think his psyche was changed by, you know, the several months of being at the very front line, you know, burying his, his soldiers every day by the hundreds. And the video address that he made the day before this campus uh, mutiny challenged not just the way the Gerasimov and Shogu were on the war, it challenged the very foundational, foundational myth of this war. He said that the war is not necessary 
that Zelensky would have signed an agreement with Putin if Putin had, quote-unquote, come down from the Olympus to negotiate. And uh, and that message also resonates now. And so uh, the immediate trigger for all of this was obviously the July 1st deadline for all the private military companies like Wagner to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense. And so he acted preemptively to scuttle that. So tell us a little bit about who Prigozhin is, and because you know he's he's not a good guy. This is like you know, I, I, as I was watching like this scene unfold, it reminded me of what Henry Kissinger said when he was asked, "Who are you rooting for in the Iran Iraq War?" And he said, "Casualties." Putin's a bad guy, but Prigozhin's yes. a bad guy too. Tell us about the things he's done with the Wagner Group. So Prigozhin is he used to be a common criminal. Prigozhin, you know, is just like Putin. You know, comes from the nasty neighborhoods of Leningrad now St. Petersburg. He was uh, involved in street crime, in robberies, in assault, in fraud, and he went to prison in the Soviet Union for 10 years. So 10 years he spent trying to bounce around the camps. Uh, he came back, justice communism collapsed, and he uh, made his millions uh, by setting up restaurants and a catering business. And you know his restaurant and his boat uh, in St. Petersburg, was one of the nicest ones at the time. Putin would take his foreign guests there. You know, President Bush, you know, was served wine by Prigozhin, you know. Uh, so were, you know, various other foreign heads of state. Heads of state. And so that personal relationship translated into his catering business, becoming one of, one of the main contractors for the Russian state and the Russian military, from, you know, from supplying army rations to school lunches. And then... Uh, because, you know, he's, you know, quite a sophisticated operator. So he launched this uh, office called the Internet Research Agency, which was a troll farm out of St. Petersburg that was really working on pushing the Russian message around the world, including the U.S. You know, he was indicted uh, by the Department of Justice for interference in the 2016 election. And then uh, he also set up Wagner, which was this instrument of deniable Russian power. You know, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov, until a year ago, was saying that Wagner doesn't exist, has nothing to do with it, it's not in Ukraine. You know, Prigozhin himself, you know, sued in the court in London uh, in the spring of last year after after he was named as the owner of Wagner. So uh, this was a sort of shadowy East India Company of Russia, if you want. Sort of, it's private, but it's executing state interests. And it was operating in Syria, where it played a major role and showing up Bashar al-Assad's regime, most of the ground fighting in places like Palmyra against Assad's opponents, and then in places like Libya, Central African Republic, Mali, uh, and several others, Mozambique. And so uh, they were called back to Ukraine uh, last uh, last March, uh, almost a month after the invasion, when it really became clear that the invasion wasn't really going according to plan to try to rescue the situation. And they succeeded because they proved to be the most combat efficient. Uh, formation of the Russian sort of military structure. Why? Because they had the money and they spent the previous years recruiting all the best talent away from the actual Russian military. So one of the things that I really liked in this in this piece that you wrote uh, most recently in the journal is the suggestion that now that Putin has really been revealed to be so weak, so in danger, so, you know, living basically, as you said, you know, off the indifference, uh, not off the genuine support of the of the Russian people, is that 
one thing the West should learn is all of these self-imposed restrictions that we've placed. No, we can't send them, you know, we, we can send them HIMARS, but they have to be limited. We can't send them ATACMS. I, I could go on with these acronyms. We can't send them any longer range artillery that might possibly reach into Russia. We can't give them jet fighters because they might possibly cross into Russia. Those arguments that, that we should not because we would provoke Putin have been revealed to be completely empty. Do you see any reaction in European or in our own Washington capital that this lesson is actually being learned in terms of how we could support Ukraine? I think there are signs, and obviously uh, it's not a coincidence, just a few days after this failed mutiny, the administration actually started talking about revisiting its refusal to supply the attackers missiles, which, you know, sort of missiles that could be fired by HIMARS and reach hundreds of miles uh, as opposed to dozens of miles that the current uh, GIMRS missiles have the range of. And uh, there's going to be a NATO summit next week uh, where all this will be discussed. Uh, So, yeah, I think there is is, is a degree of movement. But again, you know, there was this movement all along. And if you look at the self-imposed red lines of a year ago, you know, there's a lot of a lot of movement on things that were considered to be unacceptable that suddenly were delivered and are now in battlefield and making a difference. You know, the UK, you know, moving far, you know, far ahead of the US decision making has already supplied the Storm Shadow cruise missiles that can reach anywhere in occupied Ukraine and have been used very effective in the last couple of months. Ago. So, you know, ATA camps will not be a qualitatively different weapon from the Storm Shadows. You mentioned the NATO summit is coming up. What about NATO expansion? I mean, one of the, the European allies are pushing for uh, some kind of a sign or at least a signal that that Ukraine will be brought into NATO once this conflict is over. And the Biden administration is resisting for, for the same reason they've resisted providing all these weapons, because they don't want to provoke Putin. How do you think this will have an impact on NATO's deliberations about when Ukraine can come into NATO? Well, I think I think it's a very theoretical debate, because, OK, I mean, there was an NATO declaration all the way back in 2008 that said Ukraine will be part of NATO. As it, you know, this was made at the Bucharest summit. I think nobody is seriously talking about bringing Ukraine to NATO until the war is finished, because that would obviously, uh, you know, make NATO nations belligerents in the war against Russia. And, and I don't think there's any single country in NATO that wants to have a direct conflict with Russia right now. Uh, so the dialogue is really about, you know, signals and, you know, pathways to negotiations uh, but all of this, you know, depends on the outcome of the war, which is still very much uncertain. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the outcome is uncertain. So there was some speculation that part of the deal that got Prigozhin to stand down was not just getting his money back, but some commitment about changing the leadership of of Russia's military operations. Do you think that's a possibility? I mean, we certainly haven't seen it, but that, you know, Putin wouldn't do it that quickly because it would be too obvious. Do you see some some change in that? I mean, not really. What we have seen is that uh, the people who have been seen as close to Prigozhin and efficient in the battlefield uh, and respected by the Russian troops, such as General Surovikin, you know, the commander of the Air Force, who was, you know, for several months the commander of the overall Russian Ukraine, have been sidelined, disappeared, perhaps in custody. You know, nobody has seen Turovikin since the since the failed coach. But again, it all depends what happens in the battlefield. You know, if there is another major Russian defeat uh, this uh, this year, uh, 
then there'll be huge pressure on Putin to do something about it and to stop pretending that everything's going to be fine. And uh, I think Putin's own position will also be uh, quite threatened by any uh, battlefield developments uh, that expose the weakness of the commander team, that expose the, you know, the, the incapacity of the Russian military uh, in a war against a country that you didn't consider to be a serious opponent, Ukraine. So you've reported that uh, that Wagner is being disbanded and that they ha- it's supposed to hand over its weapons to Moscow, and that you also just told us that this was the most elite fighting force because they recruited away all the best soldiers, and so that's why they were so much better than the Russian military. How is this going to affect the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive that's happening right now? Is is the Russian ability to resist going to be depleted because of the disbandment of, of Wagner, and, and what, what impact will it have on the battlefield? So, so the Wagner was not actually involved in the fighting last month because after taking Bakhmut and taking horrendous losses there, you know, by Prigozhin's own admission, they lost 20,000 people killed in the fight with Bakhmut, uh, uh, Wagner pulled back to rebuild and reconstitute. And so uh, it's not a factor in this current counteroffensive. Uh, however, you know, the strength of, ba- of Wagner is the strength of its core Commanders who have enormous experience and sort of uh, this this relatively small group within its Peter Corps uh, that could leverage opportunities. So, for example, the reason why Wagner was successful in Pakhmut is because they had access to the Russian prison camps. So they could recruit you know tens of thousands uh, of prisoners that, under the command of Wagner, within its operational structure, within its sort of you know ability to integrate. Uh, in the battlefield, actually proved very effective. You know, the, you know that uh, opportunity was close to Wagner, and the Ministry of Defense is now directly recruiting prisoners to an alternative prisoner force called Storm Z, <clears throat> which is nowhere near as effective because it lacks the secret thoughts of you know Wagner's cadre of commanders. I want to ask you the real basic question, and I, this was going to be my exit question, but I have a sort of a PS at the end, so <laughs> so ex- two more for me. Your piece is called What's Next for Russia? Let me ask the question, what's next for, for Putin? His image is shattered. His leadership is shattered. His war is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, not, not now, but slowly. Certainly victory is is possible for the Ukrainians. Stalemate seems less likely. What does this all mean for Putin? He's 70 years old. He's gotten rid of any any risks, real risks to his regime. Where does this go for him? Well, you know, uh, there's an election coming up next year. You know, presumably he's going to be running again. So uh, he looks weak. He looks exposed. He looks very emotional. Uh, you know, his reaction to the putsch was to travel to the remote Dagestan in the Caucasus. And after, you know, being isolated for you know, years because of COVID, suddenly sort of joined this crowd of ecstatic locals showing him love because he desperately needed to, to sort of feel this crowd, the adulation of the crowd. And, you know, the regime narrative now kind of almost doesn't mention this whole untoward thing happened. You know, and sort of wiped out from memory, and you know he'll carry on and and hope that uh, nobody challenges him seriously. And the main trigger for such a challenge is likely to be a battle to defeat uh, for the Russian military in Ukraine. 
And so, uh, and that's why it's, it's probably so important uh, for the Ukrainians and for, for, for the partners of the Ukrainian uh, government to keep pushing in the battlefield uh, uh, to achieve the success. So you describe in your story this scene in Rostov where Prigozhin meets with the uh, the deputy chief of GRU military intelligence. He's a deputy defense minister and is sitting, you know, chatting with him. And he says, we came here because we want to get uh, the chief of the general staff in Shoigu. And, and this general, Vladimir Alexeyev, says, take them. <laughs> Did he have uh, support within the military and... Is there a growing feeling within the military that they oppose the growing opposition to the war in Ukraine that could undermine Putin's ability to execute it? Yeah. So, I mean, General Alexeyev, who was deputy head of Russian military intelligence, has not also has not been seen after that, by the way. So, and we don't know if he's a custody or not. Uh, the uh, I think there is certainly opposition to the way the war is being waged. Uh, there is a lot of sense that the war was not necessary, that doesn't mean that you actually want to end it or give Ukraine victory, because there's a lot of people in Russia who say, well, the war was unnecessary, it's a terrible idea, Putin made a big mistake, but now that the war is on, we can't lose. Uh, so we have to do everything to, to keep going. And I think there is a lot of that in the military as well. Certainly they haven't accepted defeat just yet. But, uh, you know, the combination of not being able to win and high casualties is what historically have, has caused uh, revolutions and trouble inside Russia. Look back at 1917, 1905, and look back at the war in Afghanistan. So uh, there's certainly this fermentation, you know, there's this discontent in the ranks that is increasing. You know, so far the system is holding, but it's holding until the next uh, setback in the battlefield. Okay, here's my P.S., so you wrote another piece uh, just a, just a few weeks ago that uh, was also very interesting because I think that you know there was a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking after the Prigozhin putsch effort, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, oh, what does this mean? This means this. This is how so and so sees it. This is how the other so and so sees it. And you wrote a piece about why the war in Ukraine may not deter China. I think a lot of people believed that this disastrous attempt uh, on Putin's sovereignty in Russia actually would have the Chinese having second thoughts uh, about the security of their own reign should they enter into a potentially unsuccessful conflict. You you had some doubt. Yeah, I, I think I have doubts on two fronts. Uh, uh, you know, um, there's another piece that uh, I wrote uh, that kind of looked at what's happening inside Taiwan as well. Uh, I think speaking to a lot of Chinese uh, officials, which is what I did at, uh, in Singapore uh, during the Shanghai conference, I kind of walked away from that feeling that they really look down on, on the Russian military and the Russian decision making. And the sense is that, well, you know, they are all corrupt, you know, they don't know what they're doing, and they are a winning power. We uh, you know, are not stealing, we have built up our technologies. And our arm is much better. We will not repeat the tactical mistakes that they made. And and sort of the um, the takeaway that a lot of them have is that you know, they could do better. Now it's really hard to uh, you know to penetrate the decision making you know within the very narrow decision making circle in the Chinese Communist Party. But uh, speaking to Western officials, the U.S. officials also, I mean, there is not a lot of confidence that 
the events in Ukraine have really deterred China because China is itself is far more capable, and uh, it's just a whole different uh, setup. Obviously, there is a big difference because in any war in Asia uh, over Taiwan, the U.S. is much more likely to be involved directly, and it's not involved directly in uh, in Ukraine. So that's that's a huge variable uh, that is also in front of the decision makers, and you know we don't know frankly what you know the next administration will do. That's fair enough. So exit question for me. If Putin falls, will what comes after him be worse? You know, I mean, it's hard to think of what could be worse. (laughs) You should never, ever wonder. It can always be worse. (laughs) Well, it can be worse for the Russians. All right. I mean, I mean, someone coming after Putin will unleash a sort of terror upon the Russian population. That's possible. But I don't think anybody could be worse for Russia's neighbors because what are they going to do that Putin hasn't tried already? I mean, short of nuclear weapons, which is, you know, something that uh, they're not using for their, you know, own survival interests. Everything else has been tried. You know, there's nothing that the next president of Russia could try military in Ukraine that would be more successful than what I've already tried. And whoever comes after Putin will have an interest in ending this war and focusing on internal stability. And he could blame Putin, or she could blame Putin, uh, uh, for all the mistakes made before. So I think from the point of view uh, of Ukraine and its neighbors, you know, they really don't think that uh, any alternative to Putin is worse. Oh, can I just, uh, my, my PPS, as they say, <laughs> um, but would, is that, would that have been true if, if Prigozhin took over? Yes, because Prigozhin... You know, Prigozhin has been, uh, if you look at his statement, you know, he has acknowledged that the war was unnecessary. He has spoken about, you know, the bravery of Ukrainian soldiers, and, you know, he actually has spoken highly of Zelensky, you know, whereas the Russian propaganda calls him sort of black addicted and he's not criminal. Uh, and uh, he is realistic in his assessments of what is happening. And uh, again, you know, he is not part of the original sin. You know, he was brought in. So despite all the sort of human rights abuses and murders and executions that Prigozhin have done, you know, they were not the ones who won this war. They were in Africa when this war happened. So bottom line, Putin falls, maybe bad for Russia, but good for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, that's what you hear from people in Kiev, from people in the Baltic states and Poland, doesn't it? Yeah, you make a persuasive case. Yarrow, as always, fantastic insights and super generous with your time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. So, Dan, what did you think? <laughs> so yeah. our listeners can't hear when we edit, obviously, something, but... <laughs> But, but Mark Mark sort of goes, so, like that, when we've edited something out, and now we're about to have an entirely different conversation. So here's our entirely different conversation. What I thought, dear listeners, Mark, was um, that, the, that the China stuff that we talked about with Yarrow was particularly interesting because it's really clear that the Chinese have a much more intelligent an informed appreciation of the quality of Putin's leadership and the quality of Putin's military 
than our own leaders and our own intelligence agencies do. And he talked to he talked to folks at the huge and annual conference, the Shangri-La conference that uh, that everybody was at earlier this year, and and came out of it saying, you know, that the the Chinese have absolutely no illusions about Russia, and it's not actually going to deter them from making bad and dangerous decisions down the line. Yeah, I'm not sure that I agree entirely with mm-hmm. Yarrow on this, and here uh, here's a couple of reasons why. Number one, I think they're both totalitarian regimes. And so, if yes, the Russian military is corrupt. I think the People's Liberation Army is pretty corrupt, too. Yeah. I mean, they are, they are, they're, the People's Liberation Army is a corporation. Yeah. <laughs> and We've it talked is, about it, this. It's a crony, a crony capitalist uh, corporation where the generals are making lots and lots of money. It would not surprise me at all if a lot of the capabilities that Xi Jinping thinks he has, they do not have because uh, they, have, they have diverted those resources. You know, you see the Russian generals, uh, Putin finding out that he has fewer tanks than he thought he had and fewer military capabilities and all the rest of it. I think they're just as corrupt. The other difference is, is that unlike the Russians, the Chinese haven't fought a war since 1979. No, and uh, Yarrow notes that in the piece that yeah, he that he, they, that they he wrote. They haven't tested their capabilities. So if I was if I was Xi Jinping, and again, dictators miscalculate because people are not willing to come to them and tell them unpleasant truths. So it's not it's entirely possible that they could take the lo- wrong lessons from Ukraine. But if you were acting as a rational actor and you were Xi Jinping, you would look at this and want to do a deep dive into whether or not your military is all it's made up to be. Let me tell you one thing as a person who opines on every subject about which she knows very little. Yes. And you're about I to do believe, that now? I'm about to do that now. <laughs> I don't think Xi Jinping does any sort of deep dive into whether the PLA is the military thinks it is. Um, I don't think that the the Chinese leadership is a deep dive kind of due diligence sort of a place. I think that they purge for sure when people, but it's all about politics but it's for a different, them. It's, it's not also, about capabilities. It's a different military calculation because, of course, Ukraine has a long, porous border with Russia. The Chinese military would have to get across the Taiwan Strait, which is a very difficult thing to do. And also the other thing, but this is also why if we want this war to be a deterrent to China, we have to help the Ukrainians because if the if the, right. if the if the if the Chinese look at Ukraine and say the Americans were not willing to defend a country that is an internationally recognized sovereign state, are they really going to defend uh, Taiwan, which is not? And if they are not willing to fund Ukraine with just money, not with uh, risking the lives of their troops, are they really going to risk the lives of Americans in uh, in in Taiwan? This is why p- people like Bridge Colby. Right. Who are saying we shouldn't help Ukraine because uh, we need to husband these resources for the defense of Taiwan, which I believe he believes genuinely. If if he when when the war over Taiwan happens and he's like, okay, guys, let's go. He's going to look to his left and his right. And none of the people who are opposing you, who are with him and opposing helping Ukraine are going to be there. It's going to be us who are going to be there with him saying, yeah, let's defend Taiwan. So, you know, deterrence is about will. Right. And so a demonstration of will in Ukraine is going to have a deterrent effect on China, whereas a collapse of will in Ukraine is going to have the opposite effect. So let me uh, actually put this this counterintuitive to everybody, perhaps. What if we had been all in? What if the Chinese hadn't had time to observe the weakness of the Russian military? What if we had just helped the Ukrainians kick the crap out of the Russians ASAP, right? If that had happened, the Chinese, I think, would have been deterred because they wouldn't have seen the weaknesses of the Russian military in the same way. They wouldn't have been able to appreciate just how weak Putin himself is, and they would have been 
it would have been like a punch in the face to them, I think. Because, yeah. of course, they had gone all in with Putin. And to find out, they've really only slowly found out his his real Achilles heel, his, his, his military, his political Achilles heels. Had they not had the time to see that, had this really been a quick victory that we helped the Ukrainians achieve, that would have been a much better deterrent, another lost opportunity. Well, it's not a lost opportunity because it's not too late to do that. You know, the Ukrainians have just launched a counteroffensive. They should have all the we should have given them all these capabilities. Now, I mean, when is the last time a military in Europe has launched a, a counteroffensive without air power? I mean, how the hell are you supposed to fight? We're making the Ukrainians fight with one hand tied behind their backs. Why are we not giving them attackums? Why are we not giving them F-16s? Why do they not have Abrams tanks right now? If we give those things to the Ukrainians, ASAP and stop this slow rolling of military assistance, they can tr they can still do that. You know, winning this thing by next year is still pretty damn quick. And it's within our capability to help them do that. But, you know, a long drawn out war in Ukraine that ends in a stalemate uh, and some sort of ne negotiated settlement that leaves Ukrainian territory in Russian hands is not going to be a deterrent to China. And there we leave the many mistakes of the Biden administration. Are we really going to leave them? Or are we going to take them up again in a subsequent podcast? <laughs> I suspect this is not the last you will hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.